This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Really a privilege to be here and um, to share the word with you. I am actually in some way, you might be surprised, but I'm continuing a sermon that I started in the middle of last year. <laughs> sort of June last year I came here and I preached about the so-called parable of the prodigal son and uh, then this morning I continued preaching on that and tonight I'm going to finish because I need at least three sermons to preach on that parable <laughs> um, apparently there are guys who are watching this uh, streaming um, live streaming with us and they're welcome to you guys as well and uh now I've, those who don't know me, I'm a little bit weird. I've always been a bit strange. I, I, um, I have a feeling more often, I think, than of, of sort of being the odd one out than I, than I think most other people do. But what I've found is that almost everyone feels that sometimes. Have you ever felt sort of um, out of place, like you don't belong? Or... Um, just like there's something, there's something wrong. There's something wrong, and, you, and there's, there's a, a longing that you have that you can't quite put your finger on. A, a feeling of homesickness, a feeling of um, lostness, a feeling of. Um, have you ever felt like just that a strange sense of longing for something that you can't quite articulate or describe or put your finger on, but it's just there and um, I, I, feel, I feel that uh, sometimes and I, I, I've, I've found that most people feel that and um, this evening I just want to share a little bit about that from this parable of the, of the prodigal son um, what Jesus does is he beautifully brings in a theme that is one of the most common themes in the Bible into this parable and that's the theme of Exile and homecoming. Exile, displacement, alienation, lostness, and then homecoming. And uh, so I'm going to I'm going to read this uh, this parable, and then I'm, I'm we're going to discuss it for a moment. Uh, so John, uh, Luke, Luke 15, uh, verse 1 to 3 says, "Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered gathered around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them.'" And then Jesus told him this parable. Notice there are two groups. There's two things I want you to notice before I read on from this part of the the passage. Firstly, there are two groups. There are younger brother type tax collectors and sinners. And there are older brother type Pharisees and teachers of the law. And obviously the younger brother and the older brother in the parable represents these two groups. And, um, and that's very important to notice. We'll get back to that. And then in verse 3, it says, And Jesus told them this parable. And then Jesus tells what seems to us to be three parables. Parable of the lost sheep. Parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost son. Okay? And in each of this, uh, these parables, something is lost. But I checked the Greek. It, it, it really does say, like the translation says here, then Jesus told them this parable. 
not these parables. Singular. So if we think it's three parables instead of one, we're making a mistake. It's actually one parable. We'll get to that as well later on. Remember that. Um, Then Jesus continues in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the, the, the estate. And he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to a distant country. And they squandered his wealth in wild living. The old King James said prodigal living. And that's where the, um, the name of the, that the uh, parable is often known by the, the parable of the prodigal son comes from. Verse 14 says, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How how, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to his, to, the father, to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead And he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And um, I just want to discuss this this parable from from this angle of exile and homecoming under under the following three headings. The the need for homecoming, the, the cost of homecoming, and the celebration of homecoming. So, all of us have had, I'm sure, that sense of, of longing for something we're not sure what it is, that, that, that sense of, of lostness, displacement, homesickness. 
And um, like I said, it's a major theme in Scripture. If you think about it, right at the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the Garden of Eden where all their needs are perfectly met. Their physical needs are met. Um, There's there's food, all the trees of the garden they can eat of. And um, sometimes when I see our South African export fruit, and how much bigger and better it is than the fruit that we can bear in the, buy in the shops, then I think, you know, if that fruit looks so good, I mean, imagine before the fall in the Garden of Eden how that fruit must have looked. It, was, it must have been beautiful, you know, a beautiful garden, you know. So, so even their, their, their need for aesthetic beauty is satisfied. Um, God placed them together, husband and wife in the garden, to... Perfect human beings, unfallen, not ashamed of one another. Don't imagine that. It's not good for fallen human minds to imagine unfallen human bodies. So they had fellowship, and not just with one another, with God. God walked with them in the cool of the day. So their spiritual needs, their their psychological needs, their spiritual needs, all their needs were met on every level. But then... Like this younger brother, they sort of chafed under God's rule. And they decided we want to do what we think is best for for ourselves. And they ended up being exiled from the garden. And that pattern repeats itself throughout biblical history because it's not just Adam and Eve in the garden. It's Jacob from his father's house. It's Egypt uh, Israel, who end up in, in Egypt, slaves under harsh taskmasters, under Pharaoh and his oppressive rule. And then God rescues them from that, takes them to the promised land, but they keep sinning against God, and eventually they go into exile again, into Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar. And then God brings them back from that exile, And in Jesus' time, Israel is in the promised land, but they feel like exiles in their own country because they ruled by the oppressive Roman Empire. They don't even feel welcome in their own country and in their own homes. So there's a major theme. And there's a um, a Polish-Jewish intellectual called Eva Hoffman. um, And her parents actually fled from Poland during the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust. And in other words, she experienced exile. And she writes about this theme of exile. And and this is what she says. She says, since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there any one of us who does not in some way feel like an exile? We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic selves, an ideal sense of belonging of being attuned to ourselves and, 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 and one another completely eludes us. And um, you might say, ah, you know, typical artist, you know, so dramatic, you know, so, you know, always overstating things. But, the, the, you know, is she really exaggerating? Is she really exaggerating? Um, many of you have probably seen the movie The Lion King, that great animation, you know, when, when you have kids like me. You, you've seen the movie many times. Any parents in the house that can say amen? Um, and it's an interesting movie in which we also see this theme of exile and homecoming. 
Um, and, and it's interesting, in the beginning of the movie, there's this, this wonderful song. It's the circle of life, you know. Da, 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 da. Beautiful song. And um, you, you get introduced to this, this circle of life concept. You don't quite in the beginning know what it is. But eventually, you know, Mufasa, the sort of father lion in the story, comes out and he says, no, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, all the, the, the organisms in, in the, 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 the ecosystem are dependent on one another. Uh, and, then, and then Simba, the little lion, sort of the main character of the story, says, but don't we eat the antelope? Don't we eat the buck? <laughs> no, it looks more like a pyramid to me, and we're on the top, you know. It doesn't look like a circle, you know. And, and, and Mufasa says, ah, oh, you don't understand, you see. Yes, we do eat the buck, but then we die. And our bodies become fertilizer for the grass, and the buck eat the grass. So in a sense, the buck eat us, and we eat the buck. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that just make you want to sing? (laughs) No, of course not. A story in which everyone dies. You die. Everyone you know, everyone you love dies. Everyone, you eventually die. And everyone becomes fertilizer. (laughs) Is it just me or is there something wrong with this picture? No wonder we feel out of place. No wonder we feel like something's wrong with the world. Something's not quite right. I mean, just just think about this, you know. Imagine going to, on a spacecraft to Mars, planet Mars. Now, Mars has some, I can't remember, you know, what the the makeup of, of air, of the atmosphere of Mars is. But it has some of the same elements like, uh, you know, carbon dioxide and monoxide and a little bit of oxygen, but much less oxygen than, than we have. Much less. Much more carbon dioxide and stuff. Um, But imagine getting out of that spaceship and taking your first (sighs) deep breath of Martian air. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to feel alienated. (laughs) You're going to feel like you don't belong. (laughs) Because that Martian atmosphere was not designed for your lungs. You're only going to, I don't know how long you, whether you're going to, you know, when it'll, when it'll take a few seconds, probably a few minutes at least, before you'll die. But you'll die pretty quickly. But imagine you could get your spacecraft in time before you, you know, die. Get back in your spacecraft and you come back to Earth. And get out and... Ah, so much better, you know. But you're still going to die. might not take a few minutes. might take a few years, but you're still going to die. See, the earth might be a less alien environment, a less inhospitable environment, but we're still going to die. Something is still wrong. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> late in the... <clears throat> The movie The Lion King, um, Mufasa, Simba's dad, dies, killed unbeknownst to him by his uncle, Scar. Isn't it interesting in the, 
in the movies, the bad guys so often have British accents. Have you noticed that? You want to stereotype a guy as a bad guy, you just give him a British accent. Uncle Scar, Uncle Scar, I'm going to be king one day. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Makes me want to jump for joy. Excuse me for not jumping for joy. Bad back, you know. (laughs) But anyway, Scar... This very devious British line, he tells, he tells Simba that, that he, Simba, caused his father's death, caused Mufasa's death. He says to him, you killed your father. If it wasn't for you, your father would still be alive. And then Simba said, what must I do? And he says, run. Run away, Simba, and never come back. And then he runs away through the desert, you know, somehow survives and gets found by Timon and Pumbaa, the little meerkat and, and, the, and the warthog and in a sense he's in exile he's in exile he's displaced he's alienated he's not where he belongs with his family with his pride he's the rightful king but he's he's in exile and the only way he can survive is the way we often survive with our sense of alienation and exile, of homesickness and lostness. And, and Timon and Pumbaa teach him this. They teach him to sing another song, Hakuna Matada. No worries. It's our trouble-free philosophy, Hakuna Matata. And so often that's the only way we can survive. Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Just enjoy life. And if you don't think about it, you know, the little senses of homecoming, you know, the senses of pleasure and, and the goodness in the world and, and, and so on can satisfy you for a while. But if you start thinking about it, you'll be overwhelmed by it, by the sense of alienation, lostness, homesickness. Um, even... Even the senses, those momentary senses of homecoming actually intensify. Have you ever been, for instance, um, on a holiday? There's this, I remember we used to go to the Strand where my grandma stayed. And we used to go and have a holiday there. So we'd come from Bloemfontein where we lived down to the Strand. And um, beautiful and all the family would be there, all the cousins. And it would be wonderful and we'd eat trifle and we'd, you know, be family together and we'd go to the sea and we'd swim and, and it was just this long, endless summer of holiday and fun. And it was so wonderful. Everything in the world just seemed right then. And I'm sure some of you have had that experience of having this holiday spot where everything is just right and you feel, everything just feels right for a while. And um, you go there year after year and then maybe for a while you don't go there for a couple of years and then as an adult you go back and it's not quite the same. It's a bit of a disappointment. Everything looks smaller. Everything looks a bit more shabby. It doesn't feel the same. And, and, and it's so often like that. Even the good things, even that sense of <clears throat> that longing being fulfilled is only temporary. It only lasts for a while. And after that, that sense of longing, that sense of homesickness, that sense of 
alienation comes back with a vengeance, it gets worse. Even something wonderful like marriage is like that. You know, you're so in love and, 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 and you're so into each other and, you, and you're sure no one in the history of mankind has ever been as in love as you've been and it feels so good. You get married. And eventually you can no longer put your best foot forward. And you start getting up and seeing her on bad hair days when you're like, a takbok. If you don't understand Afrikaans, ask someone next to you. Without a makeup. Whoa, you know. <laughs> and he has that disgusting morning breath. And you start having fights. And even worse, what happens is you start forgetting about one another. You know, you're so used to each other because you eat together, you sleep together, you live together. They're just there the whole time. So you start forgetting they're there. And you start acting like you actually are. And you start doing things around your spouse that you wouldn't allow anyone else to see. Because you, you sort of forget they're there. And for different people it takes, you know, some take people it takes a couple of years, some people it takes longer, shorter. But then you start seeing each other as you really are. And the reality is, and that's why the divorce rate is so high, a lot of people put so much trust and have so much hope for their marriage. They think that longing that I feel inside my my spouse is going to fulfill it. My marriage is going to fulfill it. And then they're so devastated and disappointed when it doesn't. That they think, okay, well, obviously the problem is my spouse. I married the wrong spouse. Silly me. I must just get a new one. And they go and <laughs> they find someone new and for a while it's okay and then reality kicks in again. No one describes this better than uh, C.S. Lewis in his um, sermon, um, Weight of Glory. Listen to what he says. He says, In speaking of our desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each of you. The secret which hurts so much that we take our revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect a laugh, uh, to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. We call it beauty and behave as if that settles the matter. Wordsworth identified it with certain moments in his own past, you know, like that, that holiday, that holiday spot and, and that holiday experience. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It, will, it, it was not in them 
It only came through them. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we, are, of what we really desire. But if, we, <clears throat> sorry, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, the news from a country we have never yet visited. So, what we see is that we have this longing inside of ourselves, but it's, it's a longing for something which nothing in this world can satisfy. And as Lewis goes on to say, if we find inside of ourselves desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the best explanation was that we were made for another world. So, you know, people recognize that longing. But we've got to ask ourselves, why is it there? Why is it there? Does a fish complain about water? No. Because the fish is made for water. So why do we complain? Does, does a fish feel out of place in water? So why do we feel out of place in this world so often? And uh, one of the explanations I can, I can give is found in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 where, where the professor says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. He's made everything beautiful in its time and he's placed eternity in our hearts. And in a sense, you could say that that longing is, is, is for the eternity that God has placed in our hearts, that we all long for, that we all feel, we're all aware of, but nothing in time in this world can satisfy it. It's not so much... The Garden of Eden, because we think sometimes maybe it's the Garden of Eden, you know, and that's why we try and go on holidays to go to places that are like the Garden of Eden. Maybe it's the Garden of Eden that we're longing for. But you find eventually that it's not so much the garden that we long for, but the presence of God that was in the garden. And that's why the younger brother, when he comes to his senses, starts thinking about this, and he comes to his senses and he says, I'll go to my father. Not so much the God and the place, but it's the presence of the Father. Home is not where the heart is. Home is where the Father is. I'll go to my Father. And the problem is, all of those exiles, Adam and Eve out of the garden, Israel in Egypt, Israel later on in Babylon, Israel in their own country feeling like exiles. It's all because of sin. Just like the younger brother, in a sense, those are self-imposed exiles. The younger brother sinned against his father and went into the far country. In other words, how do you solve this problem of sin? How do you pay the debt of sin? And sometimes we make the mistake of trying to do it like the older brother. I'm going to work for the father. I'm going to work it back. I'm going to slave away for him. I'm going to obey all his, his, his commands. That doesn't solve the problem. Notice, 
that the older brother feels as much as an exile. His physical distance to his father is much smaller than that of the younger brother. He's just out in the field. The younger brother was out in the far country, much further away. So the physical distance is shorter, but the relational distance is as far. He feels as alienated, and he can't earn his way back. And um, when there's sin, sin always incurs debt. That's why when we pray in our Father, we say, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When someone sins against you, in a sense, they always rob you. They rob you of your psychological peace. They rob, rob you of, of your honor. They, they rob you of, you know, whatever, your, 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 your sense of safety. They, they rob you of the truth, whatever. Um, whenever someone sins against you, there's a debt that accrues. And it's like this, you know. If Sias comes and visits my house and I have a beautiful mink vase, you know, from some other Chinese, you know, emperor, you know, that's worth thousands, hundreds of thousands of rand, and Sias comes and carelessly bumps it over and it falls on the ground and breaks. Either Sias must pay me back the couple of hundreds of thousands of rand that that vase costs, that it's worth. Or if I forgive him the debt, then it means I absorb it because I no longer have the vase. I absorb that debt. And one of the interesting things, God always required payment of debt before people can come out of exile and experience homecoming. One of the interesting things about this parable is there seems to be no payment of the debt. A lot of commentators mention this. And a lot of liberal commentators will, for instance, say, ah, you see, you know, this whole thing about atonement and debts having to be paid, it's all nonsense. God just accepts everyone just as they are. Now look at how when the son comes back, you know, the father just throws his arms around him and kisses him and puts robes and rings and sandals and fattened calves, you know, without him making any payment. Where's the payment? Doesn't seem to be any cost to the homecoming. Um, there's the story. We can just put up uh, the next slide. Um, of um, Army T- Lieutenant Daniel Dawson, whose rec- uh, reconnaissance plane fell da- down during the Vietnam War. And they actually did a um, Life magazine um, article on it. I just want to read it to you. It says, during the war in Vietnam, Army Lieutenant Daniel Dawson's reconnaissance plane went down over the Viet Cong jungle. Um, and obviously his parents tried to do follow all the legal channels to try and get him back. But when it failed, it's, uh, when his uh, brother, his older brother Donald, heard the report, he sold everything he had, left his wife with $20, and bought passage to Vietnam. There he equipped himself with a soldier's gear and wandered through the guerrilla-controlled jungle looking for his brother. He carried leaflets, picturing the plane and describing in Vietnamese the reward for news of the missing pilot. He became known as the brother of the pilot. And a Life magazine reporter described his perilous search. And um, we see, and that brings me back to the beginning of the story. Why does it say, and Jesus told him this parable, and then he tells what seems to be three parables. See, in the first parable, there's a lost sheep, a sheep who gets lost, Shepherd goes and finds him, comes back and celebrates. 
In the second seemingly parable, there's a lost coin. The woman switches on the light, sweeps up the other house, searches for the coin, finds it, and celebrates. And the third parable, there's a lost son. But no one goes to look for him. But when he comes back, there is a celebration. Why is he told like that? You see, we sometimes miss the point that Jesus told the first two stories of the parable to set up the third one. He wanted us to see the contrast. Who should have gone out to search for the lost younger brother? Maybe it's not so obvious to us, but to Jesus' original audience, it would have been very obvious. The older brother. Remember what um, Saul, Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, his father Kish did when, when some of his donkeys got lost. He sent Saul, his firstborn, out to go and search for them. So why did Jesus put such a terrible older brother in there who didn't go out to search for his younger brother? Who wasn't like this American guy who went to Vietnam. Well, he was trying to show the Pharisees and the teachers of the law what they were like. He was using them as a foil for himself. Because remember, the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him and he was receiving them and eating with them. You see, (laughs) this poor younger brother in the parable got a, a lousy older brother so that the Pharisees could see themselves and their nastiness, the nastiness of their own hearts in the parable. But we didn't get such an older brother. We got the true older brother. We got Jesus. You see, this older brother should have gone out and he didn't. Well, he didn't go out to fetch his brother. I think he actually did know where his brother was. Because notice at the end of the parable he says to his father, you know, look, all these years I've been serving you, etc. It says, but it says, when this son of yours who has squandered your wealth with prostitutes. Now, in the beginning of the parable, it says wild living. It doesn't mention prostitutes. How did he know that he specifically, his brother squandered his wealth with prostitutes? I submit to you that he knew where his brother was. I submit to you that maybe he even went and saw his brother and what his brother was doing and how he was sleeping around with prostitutes and getting drunk and all of that. And he decided... This younger brother is not worth bringing back home. Imagine if our older brother had been like that. Imagine if your older brother, Jesus, had known everything that you did, everything that you said, everything that you thought. Do you think he'd want to bring you home? Oh, but wait, he does. He does know everything that you do. He does know everything that you say. He does even know everything that you think. And then, wonder of wonders, he actually does want to bring us home. You see, our older brother came to seek and save the lost. Not at the risk of his life, like this American guy looking for his pilot brother, but at the cost of his life. He came and he entered into our alienation and exile. And he said, foxes have holes. And birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He became a wanderer. 
became the ultimate exile. He, he, he couldn't even go into towns. He wandered around between the towns. He was crucified outside the gate like an exile. Like a reject. And he hung there. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate alienation. We don't get this. We don't get this. You know, when an acquaintance rejects you, it hurts a little bit. When a friend rejects you, it hurts a lot. When a spouse or a child rejects you, it hurts even more. It's one of the most intense pains there is. And the pain that we feel at rejection is directly proportional to the intimacy of that relationship that is being broken. Now think about this. Think about this for a moment. Jesus and the Father had the most intimate relationship imaginable. They had no secrets. They had the the perfect love. And they had had that for all of eternity in the past. And all that depth of relationship, Jesus had to give up when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He came not just from his father's house to a far country or from America to Vietnam. He came all the way from heaven to earth to seek and save the lost. And and he was willing to, that's the one place in the gospels, by the way, that, that Jesus calls doesn't call him father, but calls him God, so that we can call him father again. He enters into our alienation and our exile. And then he pays our debt, the debt of our sin, the price, the cost of our homecoming. Because the exile cannot come back until, until the debt, until the cost is paid. He hangs there on the cross and he pays it for us. And not, not a finite amount of an inheritance squandered, but an infinite debt. I mean, is there anything worth more than the blood of God himself? The infinitely worthy son of God. And he gave that life, his eternal life for us. His divine life for us to pay our infinite debt so that we can be brought back home. So we can come out of exile and experience homecoming. But not only that. Not only that. I mean, if you look at the older brother in this parable, in a very real sense, he has to pay the cost. Just like this Donald Dawson, you know, sold all he had and at his own cost went to search for his brother. So Jesus, at his own cost, came to search and to save us. But this older brother in a parable, he's also having to bear the cost. Because remember, there's the law of primogeniture, the law of the firstborn. The firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. So when the younger brother says, give me my part of the estate, there were two sons. You divided the estate in three. The younger got one-third, and the oldest got two-thirds. So now the younger has taken his one-third and went and squandered it with prodigal wild living. Wasted it on prostitutes and, and, and all kinds of wild living. The two-thirds that is left belongs to the older brother. That's why he's so upset. 
that's been given to the younger brother. And in stark contrast to that, I mean, the father says, all that I have is yours. And he was being literally true. All that he had, all that was left, did belong to the older brother. It was his inheritance. But this older brother wasn't willing to share it with his younger brother. See, when the younger brother came back, stinking of pigsty, unclean, filthy, the robe that was given to him was the old brother's robe. The ring that was put on his finger was the older brother's ring. The sandals on his feet was the older brother's sandals. And the fattened calf that was slaughtered, yes, it was the older brother's fattened calf. And this older brother begrudged his sinful younger brother his stuff, his inheritance. But thank God that we have an older brother who doesn't begrudge us his inheritance, who's very willing to share his inheritance with us. Romans says, I think it's Romans 8, that says we have become co-heirs with Christ. Where we have sinned and stand naked and unclean and guilty before God, Jesus hung on the cross naked so his robe of righteousness can be placed on, on us. Where we threw away our authority by our prodigal, wild, sinful living. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, could have used his authority to call on legions of angels to save him, but he, he did not exercise that authority so that he can give it to us. Where we walked lost in the world without any direction, without any purpose, without any destiny, Jesus gave the sandals of his destiny to us. And instead of just giving a fattened calf to celebrate our return, he gave his own body. He sacrificed himself so that we can be received back home. Now, you know that um, when, when you come home, when you experience that sort of at least temporary sense of homecoming, when you go to your parents, you know, the, the time when you, when you really feel it is when you have a meal together, right? When you, when you eat mama's food again. <laughs> you feel, ah, I'm home now. <laughs> and your body is taken care of because you have good food and you know, your psychological needs are met because you, you're amongst family and you're talking to them and you're loving on each other. And Jesus gave us such a meal. He gave us um, communion. And I just want to ask the, the ushers to hand out the elements of the communion so that we can close. You see, when... That's when we really feel that we've come home, when we have that meal, and we understand what the meal means. But in this life, we will continue to experience that sense of longing, that sense of homesickness, that sense of alienation, exile, displacement. But one day, one day, when everything is restored, remember our older brother Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. He'll take us back to an environment that's not inhospitable, where we actually do belong, where we actually feel we belong, when he makes all things new. 
And the meal we eat now points towards that meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, whereas your earthly marriage cannot fulfill all your needs, cannot satisfy those deep longings, why can't it? Because it points to the ultimate marriage. It points to something beyond it. It points to our ultimate marriage with Jesus. You see, he's the only spouse that can actually fulfill our deepest desires, our deepest longings, our deepest needs. The only one. And it's interesting, in, when Israel is in exile in Egypt, at the first Passover, they're starting a journey to go home, to the promised land. But it's interesting that they eat, in a sense, the homecoming meal, the Passover, at the beginning of the journey. And then they continue to eat it throughout the journey, all the way to the end. And God gives us, and Jesus gives us, through this memorial meal, which is based on the Passover, He gives us a way to remind ourselves that even though we're in exile, we're already eating the celebration meal of our homecoming while we're going through our exile. And he says, eat this in remembrance of me. I am the ultimate older brother who heroically came from heaven to earth to come and seek and save you, poor lost prodigal, younger brothers and sisters. I gave my life for you. And, and, I, and I just really sense that God wants us to get this tonight. God wants us to get how much He loves us. He wants us to get how much Jesus loves us. At least start getting it. This side of eternity, we won't fully get it. But at least we need to start getting it. Start understanding how loved we are by our older brother who came to search for us and find us and save us. How loved we are by our ultimate spouse who can alone satisfy our every need, our deepest longings. Do you, do you realize how much he loves you? If he was willing to give up his, his relationship with the Father and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he's willing to suffer that pain, which must have been infinite pain, if it was intimate, infinite intimacy that was giving up, the pain that resulted from it must have been infinite pain. If he was willing to suffer infinite pain for you, if he was willing to come and be an exile himself and suffer that pain and then share his inheritance with you, not begrudging it to you, even though you don't deserve it, just like the younger brother, do you start to see how much he loves you? How can you resist a love like that? How can you reject a love like that? Will you not tonight, when your older brother comes and knocks at your door where you're hiding in the far country and says, open to me, will you not open your heart? Will you not let him in so he can come and dine with you? Will you not remember him? Will you not take all the hopes, all the dreams, all the expectation that you put on other people and on other things and are constantly disappointed when they don't fulfill those hopes, won't you take those hopes and those dreams and those longings, those expectations and place them on Him, the only, on His shoulders, the only shoulders broad enough to actually carry them, to actually carry you 
home. Will you not come to him? Let's stand. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.